We'll begin by singing Psalm 4, and we'll stand to sing, and the tune is Evan. O oh, hear my cry, my righteous God, <clears throat> relieve me now, I'm distressed. Display your mercy to me now, and answer my request. We'll sing the whole psalm.
<clears throat> Shall we pray? Lord, we realize today that the question that we have mentioned in our psalm has been asked by many today. Who will show us any good? As we look out on the various difficulties that are seemingly coming our way uh, with no indication that they are going to decrease, then it's not surprising that such a question will be asked. Who will show us any good? And yet the psalm gives the answer to that question. And the answer is uh, that you do it. Now you don't only do it in times of difficulty, but you also do it in times of prosperity and when there's plenty and the psalmist experience, you gave him more than what people had when their harvest abounded. And it's a challenging question who will show us any good? There's also a challenging answer. Can we say that you give us good things all the time? That in our hearts, you provide us with what the world cannot give. The world's provision even at the best, is uncertain. It may be taken away. But your provision can be provided at any time and in any place. And we pray, Lord, that we will be thankful that we can taste and see that God is good. But how do we do that? We thank you, you have told us how in your word. And you don't merely uh, tell us information, as it were, from a distance, but you come up real close. Indeed, you come so close, you speak from inside us. We thank you, Lord for the work of the Holy Spirit who is in, our, in the hearts of your people. He's not in there inactive. We thank you that he can speak at any time. But if there is a time when he's going to speak, it is now in your presence. As we worship you, the great God, the provider of salvation, the provider of spiritual blessings, 
the faithful God, the God who draws near, the God who gives peace, the God who gives satisfaction, the God who does all things in the way that only God can do. So, Lord, we ask that as we meet here together, we would be focused upon you, but that we would also be experiencing you. It's, in a sense, easy to focus on things with our minds. And in our minds, we can analyze and assess and all that kind of response. But we are more than just minds. We are also hearts. And we are invited by you to respond to you and to receive from you. And we just ask, Lord, that as we are here, we would receive mercy. That's what the psalmist prayed for. He prayed that you would show mercy. Mercy covers a wide range of things. We need mercy for everything because the reality is we don't deserve anything. It's not just pardon of our sin that mercy covers. It covers everything else that you give. As the psalmist tells us, that your goodness and your mercy can follow us all the days of our life. We pray, Lord, therefore, that we would be coming to you as a God who is compassionate, the God who is kind, the God who gives. We pray for spiritual blessings today as we meet here, that you would fill our hearts. It's None of us can actually say what our hearts are capable of holding. But whatever they are capable of holding, we ask you, Lord, that you would fill it. And that you would fill it with variety of your spiritual blessings. And that we would be satisfied your word does tell us regarding uh, those who ask you for things that they surely sh shall be satisfied. We pray therefore, Lord, that you would meet with us. You know our needs. You know what we should have in our hearts. And we just ask you, Lord, to provide it. Please, more often than not, what we are conscious of is our own sins and our own failures, our disappointments, range of aspects of life that 
we regret. But we thank you, Lord, that you can meet us out of your fullness and give to us the living water, the bread of life, that really meets our needs. We were made to be supplied by you. And we ask you, Lord, that you would therefore give us gospel peace in our hearts, that we would be uh, feasting our souls on the fact that we are in it, that we belong to your family and that we can look ahead to the eternal kingdom. And if we're not in your family, we pray, Lord, that we would do what you tell us to do to get into it. And that's to trust in Jesus. And help us, Lord, if we are in that situation, to trust in him with a living faith, a heart faith, not merely an intellectual appreciation of who he was and what he did, but a heart faith, one that comes from the depths of our being, that fills our hearts. Lord, do that for your own name's sake, we pray. We pray that you would remember us in all our concerns, whatever these concerns are. We thank you we can cast our burdens upon you. We pray too, Lord, that you would um, remind us that you're able to work all things together for good. So even if we are going through difficulties at present, help us, Lord, to take your promises to heart. We pray that you would just bless our providences, uh, that we are going through. We remember places in our own country and throughout the world where there's been tragedies. Remember the situation in the sky. And we ask you, Lord, to uh, be there uh, for people there who are needing your help. And we just ask you, Lord, to, to show your presence, your compassion in that community. Lord, remember the other parts of the world where there's real distress. Ukraine, where we can see in the news what's going on, or at least some things that are going on, and what we see is destruction. But we ask you, Lord, that you would step in there and bring all that to an end. We pray, too, that your church there would flourish and continue to grow. There are many places in the world where there are tragedies and terrible things taking place. We are seeing it in the consequences of the hot weather, all these fires, uh, devastating vast areas, not just of poor parts of the world, but of wealthy places. And Lord, we just pray that you would help those who are being so 
drastically affected by these things. Lord, we think too of the parts of the world where there's famines. Some places have had famines for, for years and years. And it looks as if that may increase. And we remember Jesus said that we would hear of wars and rumors of wars, and there would be famines and earthquakes in diverse places. And we just ask, Lord, those places that are experiencing that today, that you would help those who are trying to help them. Lord, we are seeing lots of things in providence. And maybe there's so many things we're seeing that we find it hard to take it all in. But one thing is, is clear. You are speaking to us. And we pray, Lord, that we would hear your voice. And that in our areas of concern, wherever they are, that we would turn to you for help. Lord, where else can we go? But since we know who you are, who else would we want to go to? So, Lord, we commit ourselves to you. Bless your people throughout the world, your church that's suffering for the faith. Lord, strengthen them today. Give us a fellow feeling with them, not merely a passing nod, but even to spend five minutes thinking about what they're going through. Lord, we pray that you would just help us. Help us to see that we need you in our lives. And so does everyone else. So be with us in our service, Lord, we pray. We ask you to speak to us from your word as we read it now. Bless the children who are here. We ask you, Lord, that all of them will grow up to serve you. So be with us, Lord, and bless us. For your own name's sake. Amen. We can read Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And may God bless that reading. I want to say something to the boys and girls just now, to children. I uh, saw something... Um, Unusual yesterday, um, very hot day, and yet there were some people, for some reason or other, wanting to wear scarves. And um, there was, if you add them all up, there's a few million of them, and. I'm sure some of you can work out it's everyone that's standing at a football match almost. And uh, one of the hottest days of the year, there they are, wearing all these scarves round their necks. 
Why do they do that? I don't know if you were wearing a scarf yesterday. Um, why do they do that? Because it's a badge, isn't it? It's a badge identifying them. It tells them who they are. And they want everybody to see it. So it doesn't actually matter if it seems a bit unusual to be, to be wearing a scarf on a very hot day. I was thinking of um, if we're Christians, what kind of badge do we wear? What's our badge that we put on all the time? And the badge that we put on, the Bible tells us, is the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you can remember that, but when you go home, I would like you to ask your mom and your dad, what does it mean for the Holy Spirit to be the badge that we wear? Because the grown-ups are going to think about that in the sermon. So therefore, when you get home, they should be able to tell you what the badge is like that Christians wear. So let's remember that. The next time you see somebody wearing a scarf on a very hot day, some of them look quite happy, but others of them look quite sad. But just remember that their badge gives them away. And our badge should give us away as well. I will stand and say the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. We'll now sing from Psalm 34 and sing Psalms, and we'll sing verses 1 to 10. The tune is Stuttgart, and we'll stand to sing. At all times I will bless the Lord, I'll praise him with my voice, because I glory in the Lord, let troubled souls rejoice. Verses 1 to 10. At all times I will bless the
think I said that tune was Stuttgart, but actually it was Warwick. So, so apologies for that. Um, <clears throat> we'll read a couple of verses from Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. The Apostle Paul was a, a man of unusual experiences. He had dramatic encounters with God, starting with his conversion when he was given a very direct and um, awe-inspiring introduction to the Christian life. But he had plenty others after that as well, didn't he? He was taken up to the third heaven. And such was that experience. He said he didn't know where he was. Whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. And because he had um, these rather extraordinary experiences, we might wish to put him on a plane above everyone else. And we would say, we can't all have his blessings, can we? Well, perhaps he was aware of that himself, that people were saying that because we can see in, um, in verse 3 that he says to these people in Ephesus that every person in Christ is blessed with every spiritual blessing. So whatever Paul's experiences were, or whatever any uh, eminent or notable Christian goes through. We are not to look at them and say that somehow or other they have been given blessings that we don't have. Because these people in Ephesus, some of them, as we can tell from later on in the letter, there were husbands and wives parents and children, masters and servants. That's who he's speaking to. But he starts off the letter by saying that they've been all blessed with every spiritual blessing. That's really quite extraordinary, isn't it? We've all heard the hymn, haven't we? Don't know if we've ever done it, though. We might have sung it with enthusiasm. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. 
you start to name them one by one, it would be the longest item you've ever sung in your life. Because where would you stop? Just going on and on with all these spiritual blessings. And Paul, even in a way he writes this opening chapter of his letter, shows that he's overwhelmed by the riches that he's been given. Between verse 3 and the end of the chapter, as far as the original language is concerned, there's only two sentences. Sentence 1 goes from verse 3 to verse 14, and that's his statement of praise. And he just piles on top of every statement another one. But he's not out of control, because we can see from the way the, the verses are in verses 3 to 14 that he talks about the Father, and then about the Son, and then about the Spirit. So it's all structured in his mind. It's not just a collection of rambling thoughts. That is one sentence. So he has just piled things on top of the other in this statement of um, enthusiastic praise. And we might think, well, that's not too surprising because when we praise God, we should be just overwhelmed with um, awe and delight at the riches of his grace that he has poured lavishly upon us. But when we come to his prayer from verse 15 to the end of the chapter, it also is one sentence. And in his prayer, he is again piling statement upon statement. And why would he do that? Well, it's no doubt because he wanted to give his readers reasons why they should expect God to answer their prayers or his prayer for them and to what extent God would show his power in answering those prayers. And uh, we can read in the prayer what he goes to. He goes to the resurrection of Christ. What an amazing display of divine power. But according to Paul's prayer there in Ephesians chapter 1, that was not a you, that display of power is continuing because the same degree of power is at work in the lives of these believers. So Paul's praise and Paul's prayer is certainly very striking, isn't it? And I suppose we have to ask ourselves, why? Why was Paul so on fire? And the answer is in verses 13 and 14. The presence of the Holy Spirit, whom Paul describes there in these verses. Salvation is a wonderful thing, isn't it? It's great to think about God the Father 
away back in eternity for reasons that we can't even start to wonder. Choosing his people. And then, as time unfolds, one by one they come in and the Heavenly Father adopts them into his family. What a wonderful feature of salvation. And then there's God the Son, the Redeemer, who came into this world to rescue not just those who are lost, but to rescue those who had lost their inheritance. And there, Paul tells us, Jesus has done that. Tells us there in verse 11 that even in him we have an inheritance. And that's wonderful features of salvation. What God the Father does, what God the Son does. But he also points out that an important feature of salvation is what the Holy Spirit does. And he points out there that in this particular set of verses, he mentions two things about the Holy Spirit. He is the seal, and he is the guarantee of something, or the earnest, the foretaste of something. And that's just as much a part of salvation as what the Father does and what the Son does. To know the Holy Spirit in our lives is as much an evidence of salvation as rejoicing in membership of God's family or getting the blessings connected to the inheritance. So I just want us to think about what it means in these two verses to have the Holy Spirit. Paul says that he's promised. We were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. I wonder what he means by being promised. I mean, who was he promised to? Who made the promises? Two possible answers can be given, and maybe more than two, for all I know. But um, one is that Jesus refers to the promise of the Father. He told the disciples on the, after his resurrection and before he ascended that they were to wait in Jerusalem until the promise of the Father was fulfilled. And that particular promise, it could have been given to Jesus even before he came into the world. Because, as we know, we don't understand this, but we know it happened. Now, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit agreed 
what each of them would do as far as our salvation is concerned. And in order for salvation to be experienced by us, the Father had to do something, and the Son had to do something, and the Spirit had to do something, and it was promised to Jesus that if he completed the work of redemption, that he would be given the Holy Spirit in order for his people to be blessed. And Jesus, when we read there in, in his upper room teaching in the night of his arrest, that is what he's stressing. We might imagine, since he's about to go to the cross, that what he would be stressing is what he would be doing over the next 24 hours. And he may have done. But what we're actually told about in John chapter 13 to chapter 16 is that he speaks about what the Holy Spirit will do. After he has risen from the dead and after he has gone back to the Father, the Holy Spirit's going to come because the Father will keep his promise. So that's one way of looking at it. And it's a nice way to think about it because every time the Holy Spirit does something in your heart, it's a fulfillment of the promise of the Father. But there are rather, there is another suggested view, and that is that the Holy Spirit was promised in the Old Testament. It's not just the coming of Jesus that's described in the Old Testament. I mean, Isaiah says lots of wonderful things about the coming of Jesus. But he also says wonderful things about the coming of the Holy Spirit. I mean, I don't know if you this verse crossed your mind when you saw all these arid fields. I will pour water on him that is thirsty, and on the parched ground I will pour out my spirit. And that's happened. Because the world was very dry. Imagine what the world was like on the day before the day of Pentecost. And the Spirit came. And the world has never been the same since. So it's good that the promises have been kept. And it's a reason for us to mention the Spirit in our prayers. Because prayer, in a real sense, is speaking to God about His promises. Prayer, primarily, is not me thinking up something to say to God. But rather, it's me speaking to God, or you speaking to Him, about the things He has promised to give. So the Holy Spirit, we can say to both the Father and the Son, He was promised. Then there's the Spirit as a seal. What was a seal? Because we have to ask that question, don't we? 
Vasil would be very familiar. The idea of Vasil would be very familiar to the people in Ephesus. Because Ephesus was a seaport. If you go there today, it's miles from the sea. That's because the land has changed. But in Paul's time, it was a seaport. And every day there was cargo arriving. And on every box and on every crate, there was a seal. And the point of that seal was it indicated who owned it. Somebody from, I don't know, Rome may have sent something in a box to Ephesus. And who does this box belong to? Well, people couldn't write very much but they could identify seals. And therefore they would say, oh, that's that's so-and-so's seal there. We'll have to take the box to his agent in Ephesus. There was something that identified who the owner was. And also you got seals on important documents. The emperor would make a rule and one of his servants would write it out and then he would take his ring and put dab it on something and then put it onto the paper and if you didn't obey that letter you would soon discover who was in charge. It marked authenticity. And Paul says here, that's what the Holy Spirit is. It's a sign of ownership. It's a sign of authenticity. And we can even see that from the chapter. Who stamped us if we're Christians? Who stamped us with the Holy Spirit? Because that's the idea of here, we can see from Ephesians chapter 1, if we trace it all the way back to verse 3, that it's God the Father that did it. Our Heavenly Father put a mark on us that identifies us as His. And if people have the eyes to see it, they will recognize it immediately. Paul, writing to Corinthians, says this about them, same idea, but he says it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. I mean, there's a lot of years have passed between Paul writing 2 Corinthians and writing Ephesians, but he's still talking about the same ideas. The pictures filled his mind. Now, the, the obvious difference between these um, seals that appeared on cargo or that were on, a, on official documents, the obvious difference between them and the seal that's given to Christians is that those other seals are dead. They couldn't do a single thing. That seal... That was on the box from so-and-so in Rome to so-and-so in Ephesus. Never said a word. 
But when it comes to the Holy Spirit, he's alive, isn't he? He's a sign of life. He's in the, he's on his people, but he's there, living. I mean, I suppose it is possible. I don't really know where these ancient seals faded on the journey. You know, but sometimes when a boat left Rome, it had no idea when it reached Ephesus. It could take months, even longer. And perhaps by the time it got to the port in Ephesus, the seal was a bit dim. But that doesn't happen with God's seal. If we're Christians, we're sealed with the spirit of life. And he's in our hearts. And he's not just there as the spirit of life, but he's there as the spirit who loves. I mean, it's dangerous at times to move from us to God and use ourselves as examples of God. Because God is high above us. But you know, if our hearts can pulsate with love, what about the Holy Spirit's heart? I mean, Paul does pray that the love of the Spirit would be known. And can he be there and not reveal his love? And in addition to being the source of life and the source of love, He's also a liberator, isn't he? He's a sign of liberation. Because prior to having him stamped on us, we belonged to somebody else. There was somebody else's mark on us. And Jesus tells us who it was. When he told the Pharisees, you're off to your father the devil. That was the mark that was on them. And it doesn't take much as we look around the world today to see what mark people have. But the mark on Christians should be obvious. The Holy Spirit. He's in us as a living, loving, liberating spirit. He reminds us all the time that we belong to God. I mean, Paul says that in Romans 8, doesn't he? He cry, Abba, Father. He reminds us that we've been redeemed by Jesus. Never going to do something wrong. Out of nowhere comes this little reminder you're a Christian. Shouldn't do that. Shouldn't say that. And he reminds us too that we've been liberated from the power of sin. It's been broken. You don't have to lose your temper. It's not because you've got a genetic history of ancestors who lost their temper. 
but causes us to lose our tempers. Don't have to lose them. The Spirit's there as a liberator. And as we think of that, well, surely, if he's here in our hearts, he'll make himself known. Won't he? He'll just be evident. When we're talking about the Holy Spirit, we're talking about Almighty God. We're not talking about a little breeze that comes along and we don't even notice it. We're talking about Almighty God as the mark on our souls. And his effect will make himself known. It's impossible for it not to happen. And since he's the distinguishing mark of all Christians, it means that the same things will be seen in every Christian. The fruit of the Spirit. It will happen. The Spirit is there. Same fruit. In every Christian. Difference in degrees, of course. The longer we've been Christians, the more we should have. But often that's not the case. But anyway, same effects. He's a seal. How thankful we should be. You shouldn't be surprised that Paul says in this same book in chapter 4 and verse 30, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. You know, for Christians, we're like a box on a journey. We've left the home port, as it were, and we're being taken to the port of heaven. We're somewhere on that journey today. And the seal is with us. And we should know his presence. And others should see his presence. Because a seal is always visible. By definition, it had to be visible. So that's the seal. And then there's the guarantee or the earnest. Because the idea here is that of a deposit. The word is taken from the language of commerce or something like that. You go and buy a house, you put down a deposit. The deposit is part of the payment. It's a kind of guarantee that the rest will come. And it's the same with the Holy Spirit when he's in our hearts. It's similar to the idea of first fruits. When Paul does talk about the Holy Spirit as the first fruits. The first fruits was a, a ritual they had in the, in the harvest festivals of Israel where a little sample of the future harvest was offered to God 
as an indication that the full harvest would come. And the Holy Spirit's in our hearts for that end. Someone said about it that this, in this sense, the deposit of the Holy Spirit is a little bit of heaven in believers' lives with a guarantee of much more to come. I'm sure at different times we sung, Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. What we meant it when we sang it. Because the Spirit's there. And he gives us foretastes of the glory to come. Of course, there are some things about the heavenly world we can't have foretastes of. It's impossible to have them off now. Foretastes of them now. You and I, no matter how sanctified we could get, we will never have a foretaste of sinlessness. That's just impossible. There's nobody ever been alive yet, apart from the Savior himself, who knows what it is to be sinless. Who's got any idea what it is to be sinless? So when we talk about the Holy Spirit giving foretaste or an earnest or a pledge or a deposit, Samples of the world to come. He's not talking about sinlessness. Nor is he talking about direct interaction with Jesus face to face. We don't see Jesus face to face. If we did, we'd be overwhelmed. But there are some things we do taste. There are samples of the glory to come. And I'll just mention three. There's the unity of God's people. Brotherly love. Which Christian should I not love? Who would dare answer such a question? And if you, we were to list some people we don't love, that list never came from the Holy Spirit. In this life, we get foretastes of the harmony of heaven. And that's amazing. Priorly love, we know we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. God's people, the unity among them, well, they have the same experiences, don't they? The same conflicts, the same blessings. It's actually, it's actually, when you think about it, impossible for them not to have this foretaste. I mean, it must happen. They're brought into the same family. They've got the same Redeemer. They're going to the same destination. And the more we have of this, it's a sign we have more of the Spirit. And the less we have of it, it's a clear sign that we've grieved them.
So it's the unity of God's people. There's also an understanding of God's truth. I mean, in this life, we never know anything fully, but we can know lots of things truly. And some people, of course, as they've been on the verge of heaven, on their deathbeds, their minds were taken up with the things they would understand once they crossed the river. When Melanson, the German reformer, was coming to the end of his life, you know, the last day of his life, or the two days before he died or something, he composed a list of the things he was going to see once he died. And one of the things he was looking forward to was understanding more and more the mystery of the union of the divine and nature and the human nature in Christ. I mean, Melanchthon knew a lot about Christ already. It was him that composed the statement, to know Christ is to know his benefits. But, having spent a lifetime knowing Christ, he knew there was a lot ahead of him. But he still had foretastes of it. It's a real challenging question to ask ourselves. How much do I know of Jesus? How much do we know of him? Not about him. How much do we know of him as our companion? Our friend? Our contact? If there's one thing that's guaranteed, the Holy Spirit will make Jesus real to us. So we get increased, we get understanding of real truth from the Spirit, supernatural truth. And we don't have to, some or other, make huge strides in theology to get that. A lot of theology is just human speculation. But there's biblical truth that is for us. And we're meant to feed our souls on it. And there's a third blessing which we could call unhindered access to God. Up in heaven, they're close to the throne. Down on earth, we're close to the throne. They up there, they're all perfect. And often when we draw near to God, we find interruptions. The devil, sin. But you know, there are times when we're given samples. Read this by Thomas Watson. Just kind of summarized it. 
Oh, that sweet serenity which drops us honey upon the soul while it is drawing near to God. Do we understand that? Oh, that sweet serenity which drops us honey upon the soul while it is drawing near to God. How comfortable it is to draw near to the sun, S-U-N, and how sweet it is to approach near to the sun of righteousness. That's what heaven's all about. If we're being given samples of it in this life, We'll have that. He's the earnest, the guarantee. And it's almost as if, well, I don't know what words to use, but I put it this way God is eager for us to have the sample. Jesus died for us to have the samples. In the world to come, we'll have the samples. I'm just going to close with this particular comment that somebody said about this precious activity of the Holy Spirit. Even as a mere earnest, he is the richest gift in the treasury of heaven. You know, we're called to reality, to real contact with the triune God. God has done everything for us to know him. Not perfectly, but truly great privileges. Shall we pray? Lord, we thank you for salvation. Salvation from sin, certainly. Because where would we be without pardon? But for most of us, salvation from sin was a long time ago. We were saved to something. Saved to know yourself. We thank you that you have put your spirit on us. The spirit of life the spirit of love, the spirit of liberty. We thank you that he's at work, that whatever we are on the Christian journey, the seal is still there. And he's also there giving us earnests, foretastes, samples of the world to come. Help us, Lord, all of us, to experience them in an increasing way for your own name's sake. 
Amen. We'll close by singing from Psalm 146, verses 1 to 6. This time the tune is Stuttgart. Praise the Lord, my soul, O praise him. I'll extol him all my days, while I live to God my Savior. From my heart I will sing praise. We'll sing verses 1 to 6. Praise the Lord, my soul, O praise him. of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.